Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Stop. Namihi nui and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance Tene. Tonight we're going to hear about an art science collaboration involving a 45 year old artwork and one man's microbiome. But first, teeth can tell us a surprising amount about an animal's lifestyle where it goes, what it eats. And not just teeth, as I discover when I meet Niwa's Brittany Graham. Brittany works with marine megafauna such as whales and sea lions, but that doesn't mean she spends a lot of time at sea with them. I deal with very tiny samples from them, but I am lucky every once in a while to go on some oceanic um, voyages to get more direct samples from them. But at the end of the day, a lot of my life is spent studying little samples collected from these animals, from everything from whiskers taken from these seals and sea lions to little tissue samples that are collected from them when they're tagged. So what is the whisker of a sea lion going to tell you? So if you grab that whisker from the sea lion, it's a bit like our hair in that it grows incrementally, um, so it grows as we age. And so I can look at um, areas close to um, the base of it, and that'll tell me what it's recently been feeding on, and I can look at the tip of the whisker and figure out what it's been eating sometime in the past. So what is it about that whisker that tells you what it's been eating? The tool that we use is called stabilized tip analysis, and it's quite simple in that the nitrogen that we find in, in both our tissues and animal tissues, it has isotope values. And the isotope values of our tissues are a direct reflection of our diet. So let's say I just ate, oh, let's say, mussels from um, Wellington Harbor. My isotope value of that nitrogen isotope value would be three units higher than the mussels. Explain that three units to me. Yep, it's the unit that we use for measurement, so it's called three per mil. Um, but it's just the three units. So every time you go up a trophic level in a food web, you go up three steps or three units, and that gives us an idea of where an animal is in the food web and also what it's eating. Is that because as you go up the food web, you're basically accumulating stuff because you might be one person, but you might have eaten six mussels? Yes, that's actually a good point. So you're accumulating it, but also we're excreting the light value. Um, So as we process food, we excrete the light isotope quicker than we excrete the heavy one. So the heavy one stays inside us, and we excrete and process the light one. So we get a little bit heavier as you go up the food web. So the isotopes you look at, is nitrogen the only one? Nope, there's a whole range. So we look mainly at what's called stable isotopes. So that means that they're not radioactive. And we look at everything from carbon and oxygen and nitrogen and hydrogen. These are all um, basic uh, elements that are found in all of our tissues. So we look at the isotope ratios of those elements 
and they tell us a range of things. But what we typically focus on in marine ecology and, and marine food webs is carbon and nitrogen. Those are our, our two go-to isotopes. And nitrogen tells us a lot about the diet, as I just explained. And carbon is a bit more of a conservative tracer. So I can um, determine if, let's say, a seal or um, a tuna or a shark is feeding close to the coast, because that has a different carbon isotope value, versus a pelagic or open ocean system. So tell me about some of the things you've looked at and and some of the things you've found. It's been very exciting. Some of the work that we've done is we've recently looked at some tuna, sharks, and billfish collected around New Zealand from the fishery. So MPI puts observers on these fishing boats, and they've been kind enough to collect tissue, actual muscle tissues, the same stuff that we actually eat in sushi restaurants. And then they send them to us, and we're looking at those. And we're actually using that to understand the movements of, of the tuna, the billfish, and the sharks around New Zealand. And what we're finding, which is similar to some tagging data that, that's been done, is that these animals are not staying in New Zealand waters long. They're um, immigrating in and foraging for a while and immigrating out. The pattern's quite random, which is not what we expected. We kind of expected maybe all the tunas to come from the tropics and enter the New Zealand waters in the summer when they warm and then leave when the waters start to cool again. But it looks like they're kind of doing almost a a yo-yo dance down from the tropics and back up. The movements are are quite random, which is, is something that we haven't seen in other places in the Pacific. So how does that manifest in your sample? So you were saying... A tropical signature, a temperate signature, a tropical signature. Exactly. So at any given time, if you're on a fishing vessel or you're out fishing yourself and you took a sample of muscle tissue from these fish, some of them look tropical, some of them look more temperate or more New Zealand-based. So what kind of sharks have you been working on? So mainly um, three that are caught in the tuna fishery, and that's poor beagle, blue sharks, and macos. And they're quite interesting in that the macos seem to definitely be showing this behavior of um, coming back and forth from New Zealand. Their isotope values are very varied from those individuals that look tropical to those that look like they've been around New Zealand for longer periods of time. And what about poor beagles? Tell me about poor beagle sharks. They're also showing a similar pattern. They tend to, um, I can say it just as an overview, that they seem to be spending a bit more time around New Zealand compared to the macos and the blues. So as far as they are in the food web, they're all quite high trophic level or apex predators, but with the maco coming a little bit ahead of the rest. But poor beagles of the three seem to be spending a little bit more time around New Zealand than the others. Can you show me how you go about determining all of this? Obviously, the most critical part is the person who's collecting the samples. Um, So thankfully, um, we're able to rely on a lot of great folks in the field. Um, So from the MPI observers on fishing vessels to people down on Auckland Islands that are doing censuses of the sea lions. We even rely on recreational fishers to to collect um, billfish samples for us or shark samples for us. And then we grind the sample down into a fine dust And then we uh, package it in a way that that we can enter it into our mass spec. And that's the machine that provides the isotope samples. And then the machine combusts these samples into gases. And that's what it's actually measuring is the the isotopes of the gases, of nitrogen gas and and CO2. And then we get that data. And then I spend a lot of time sitting at my desk making sure I can figure out what that data means. You mentioned sea lines. So what have you been looking at with the sea lions and what have you found? Yep, so with the sea lions, that's some of the first work that we did. We have boxes and boxes of sea lion teeth. You do have boxes and boxes of samples all in plastic bags. And wow, lots of... They're quite 
big chunky teeth, aren't they? They are, but if you see that, that's actually the only portion you would see if you were actually, if the sea lion was smiling at you. Um, and that the, the rest of that part is in the jaw. But what we do is these um, teeth have been collected by um, a whole host of um, scientists, but ma- mainly from Massey University, to look at um, the reasons that they uh, perished or died. And we have also samples from Te Papa. So we've been able to get teeth all the way back to the early 1900s, about 1920. So we slice these teeth and then we look at the annual bands in the teeth and we're able to drill them and take that material from the annual band. Ah, so you look at one year and then the subsequent year and the subsequent year. So if the sea lion, let's say, was 15, we can look at that 15 years of that sea lion's life. We mainly focus on females because they're critical to the population. And we were able to look from 1920 up to almost present um, because there's been the significant decline at the Auckland Islands to see if we could see any patterns Um, And what we did see is that there are large patterns, and we think that it might be driven by environmental variability. So there's been shifts in the environment or the ocean conditions around uh, the Auckland Islands that that is showing up in the sea lion teeth. So that might mean, for instance, that water currents changed, water masses moved, and they might have been feeding on one species, they switched to another species. Is that what you mean? Yep, it could be either of those, or it could be also a shift in the primary production or the carrying capacity of the area. Um, So there are three really quite big um, hypotheses to test um, and and that's what future work needs to do is you know is there been changes in ocean conditions such as water masses or are they switching their prey the data suggests that it it definitely has to be more than switching prey it has something to do with the the food web in that region shifting so what we're doing now is we're going to be soon looking at seabirds, um, some albatross species in the subantarctics, and we're going to be taking their feathers and um, more recently some blood samples and seeing if we see similar patterns for them as well to see if we see this variability that suggests that there's been changes in the ocean conditions. Still a lot of work to be done, but the initial results from the sea lions um, suggest that there's a real, a real significant story there. So it will be a case of seeing whether what you see in the seabirds is the same pattern that you see in the sea lions? Exactly. So we want to do multiple species, um, mainly all top predators or or marine megafauna, to see if we see the same patterns in the Auckland Islands as we do in the Campbell Islands. Um, um, We're looking to uh, do some work on the penguins as well because there's been some declines in in some of the species, as many people know. Um, So we're trying to link all these species together to understand the subantarctic and see if there are patterns, large patterns, of change that are affecting these species differently and and causing some of the declines or or population fluctuations. Just thinking those teeth, they're giving you almost a permanent record for an individual. So every year it's laying down a new layer and that's permanently there. If you wanted to look at something over a much shorter time span, say something like weeks or months, what would be the best kind of sample to have for that? So you would pick blood would probably be your best choice and what we do with blood is um, you can actually just spin in a simple centrifuge and you get the red blood cells and you get the plasma and the plasma turns over very very quickly um, days to weeks so that's the one that we usually go after if we want a really short term answer and then the whole blood's a little bit longer term. On the other extreme, um, another study that we recently started is looking at the skulls of beaked whales that they hold at Te Papa. So they have this amazing collection of whale skulls, um, once again dating back to the early 1900s, of a whole range of species. And the number of beaked whale species around New Zealand is the highest in any um, place on the planet. 
pretty much we just don't know much about these beaked whales. So we want to know about the diet and their movements. So we're taking the actual skull or bone material, and that gives an indication of almost the lifetime of that animal. So that's the other extreme. You can go from blood to look at you know, what an animal has done recently to something like skull or bone material. And what's also exciting, too, is this is getting back to animals that could be extinct as well. So it's a great way of getting insights into lifestyle. It is. It definitely. We can recreate ecosystems that don't exist anymore by just getting our hands on the right samples. So this all sounds like a great tool to complement other ways of studying things, you know, other ways of looking at diet, other ways of tracking where animals go. Are there any kinds of animals that it doesn't work so well for? Yes, there are. For this tool to work, you have to forage in different areas that have isotopically different values. One example would be humpback whales. At least in um, the southern hemisphere, they, they forage almost entirely in the southern ocean, and then they go to the tropics to mate and breed. But they don't eat there. They don't eat there. So if we look at the isotope values from, let's say, a biopsy that we take from their skin, it's telling us that they're foraging in the southern ocean, even if we collect the sample from around New Zealand. So it's not going to be a useful tool for saying that these whales go to these particular places in the, in the Pacific. It's not going to give you that information. No, it's going to tell you that they really like the krill in the Southern Ocean. And the same would be for, let's say, for example, a seabird. If a seabird migrated a long distance but didn't forage along that distance, you could only tell about the um, starting point and the end point. So there are some marine animals that uh, this tool is definitely not the best tool to, to inform you on what they're doing. Thanks, Brittany. That was Brittany Graham from Niwa. Kei te whakaronga mai koe ki tō tātou au horihori. Hei hōtaka e pānaki tō tātou au whānui. You're with Our Changing World on RNZ National. And now I'm delighted to have an artist on the show. Billy Apple is one of New Zealand's leading artists and he was a finalist this year for the MetLife Care Senior New Zealander of the Year as well. He's well known for his collaborations with scientists, and we'll get to his latest in a minute. But first, what kind of an artist is Billy Apple? It's always been conceptual art. I mean, it's always been head over hand sort of thing. Right from the word go in 1960, I made a, a decision that the idea was paramount. So the practice has always been um, other people um, make, the, make it happen. Well, some of your recent collaborations have been with scientists. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I have collaborated in the past with scientists, like back in 69, I think it was, I collaborated with Dr. Stanley Shapiro, who is a, uh, a physicist at uh, GTNE in, in, uh, in New York, and he discovered white laser light. But he, uh, he assisted me in some very early laser pieces. One of them was to shine a laser, a very powerful laser onto the moon. I've done a lot of work with other other scientists over the years. Conceptual arts, brainy stuff. Most arts sort of candy for the eye, really, you know. But I like to think mine looks like candy, but it's got you know, something, some grunt behind it. I would also done my genome as well at Otago University, massive bloody work. I did that in conjunction with a, a, a Dr. Craig Hilton. So you already had your genome sequenced. Why did you get that sequenced? Why not? It's, I'm interested in everything. But the grunt of these works is simply that it has information. The trouble with a lot of artists very decorative. My works may look decorative, but they do have a conceptual uh, bend. Creating a massive artwork based on his genome is just the latest in a series of artworks dating back to the 1960s. 
in which Billy Apple puts himself at the centre. One of the early results was a series of artworks produced in the early 1970s called Excretory Wipings. That was a, one of a, a group of works. It was really looking at um, myself as subject and um, my habits, bodily habits. Every day I diaried my uh, toilet activities and my nose-blowing activities. Quite a lot of scientific precision in this then, dating things, well, timing things. Yeah, but conceptual art was a bit like that. I mean, one is very careful about proportions or measurements or, or time. Time is always always take a look at the time when something happens and uh, the date, always the date and time. Mm. So you ended up with all of these bodily excretions in a way, including from every time you wiped your bottom. Yep. You exhibited yep. all that work? I did in 1970. I, I re-exhibited at the Serpentine in 74 body activities, uh, nosebleeds, earwax extractions and masturbation and they were presented in one massive gallery at the, at the Serpentine. And you kept all of these artworks? Yes, I still have them all. They're, they're works. I mean, you know, some people do drawings. I blew my nose. <laughs> Did you have any inkling back then that one day you might use them for a completely different no, I purpose? Mean, I mean, I'm <laughs> delighted that 46 years later they came into play with a project with Justin. I mean... And, I'm still alive and could do a new one 46 years later so we could do a comparison. The Justin that Billy Apple mentioned is Justin O'Sullivan. Justin's a microbiologist at the University of Auckland and the Liggins Institute. He has a strong interest in genetics and he enjoys a good collaboration. It's a really interesting project because we got introduced to Billy um, through the Morris Wilkins Centre and Billy went to the Morris Wilkins Centre because he's been doing these art-science collaborations f- for quite a while. And he went there and um, he was talking to Peter Shepard and, and he said, uh, you know, I've got these toilet tissues from this excretory wipes exhibition that he did in the, in the 70s and he's got these samples, um, is there anything we can do with them? And so we said, sure. But as you do, we, we can sequence them. And so that, that's what, what, what we set about doing and comparing what he had from uh, 1970 with what he, what he produced and what was in his microbiota today. So what was so unusual about that artwork as far as you're concerned? To put it quite bluntly, no one keeps poo, right? It, it's something that we flush away, we throw it away all the time. And so for us, samples that are 40 years, 46 years old, you know, are, are amazing. It's just this resource that's just phenomenal. You know, it's not something that we have. The the field, the microbiome field, and understanding the organisms that live on and in us, it's been going for a while, um, but technology has driven a change in the way we address it and the way that we can look at it scientifically. Um, and that's all come about largely because of the human um, genome projects where sequencing things developed and ways of sequencing things developed. And because of that, there's technology change and that technology changes meant that we can now look at these microbiomes and organisms that live on and in us in a really different way. So that means that samples like Billy's, where we get something from 40 years ago, where this wasn't even on the radar, right, you know, 1970s, they'd, they'd just started sequencing. And so in that time period, it's shifted so much in what we can do. So these samples, no one ever really thought that this would be possible. So we got given this, this, this almost like it was a time capsule, right, from, from, from way back, 1970, you know, before I was born. It's just not something you get, you know. So the question that interested you was how does perhaps our microbiome change over time, and measuring that's difficult because we mostly know what our microbiome is now. 
yeah. So we know what it is now, and we can get samples now, and we can keep doing that, but you know. So we can go forward, but we, can we can't go, go backwards. Forward, we can't go backwards, that's right. So prospective studies are starting now, and they've, they've started a while ago, and, and they're collecting samples, you know, and so some people collected stuff out for six years and stuff. A group in the States did this, and they were able to show that over time, from one individual over six years, you know, your, your microbiome changes, um, because that's what happens. You know, we, as we develop, as we age, as the foods that we eat change, as the environment changes, you know, the microbiome is the interaction or is the interface between you and your environment, your genes and your environment. And so it changes. For us, the question was, like, over this huge period of your life, 46 years of your life and of Billy's life, is it possible that his microbiome still stays the same, that there are some organisms that he keeps because it's necessary for him to have them because his genome, his genes, actually select for some organisms. And so his samples gave us that opportunity to do that, to look at that, because Billy had also, um, through work that he had done with Craig Hilton and Peter Sy and other people, actually sequenced his genome as well. So we had this genome sequence and we had his poo, and it's like, it was fantastic, yeah. So, so sample A 46 that. years ago, sample B now. What sort of changes did you see? Did you see changes? Oh, yeah, changes. So there are changes, definitely changes. So, but, but the key thing there wasn't the changes that occurred because, you know, unfortunately we can't link those changes to any changes in his diet or anything because it's such a long period, you know. And we know that diet, antibiotics, you know, everything changes things. But what we did see was that like 46% of the bacteria that were present in his 2016 sample were actually present in his 1970 sample. So he retained a group of organisms, and they stayed, and the same ones were there. So that's nearly half of his microbiome was the same. Yeah, so nearly half of it was the same. And it's awesome, right? You know, because when we looked at his genome sequence as well, there was a paper came out from some uh, Dutch group uh, last year, and they showed that there were certain genes, and they correlated with the presence or absence of certain bacteria. And so with Billy, we were actually able to show that he had some of these variants, these genetic variants, these changes in his genome, and he had the presence or absence of that bacteria that this other paper showed as well. And that was cool, and that was in both samples way back in 1970 and 2016. So if it was absent, it was absent in both, and if it was present, it was present in both. It was awesome. It was was really cool, yeah. But you've got no reason to believe that Billy isn't, in a sense, quite an average person, so you and I both might have reasonably significant amounts of our microbiome that have been with us for a very long time. Yeah, because the microbiome is not separate from you. You know, you really are just a walking ecosystem, right? So what interests Billy Apple about the difference in his microbiome from when he was 35 years old to when he was 80? The same things are there, but different proportions. I'd like some respect for these projects. That's the problem when it's an artist. It's all great, sort of always treated though it's some sort of bloody joke thing. But in fact, uh, this is a deadly serious project. And I think the findings of... Justin and the team found it incredible, really. I mean, a real world first. And I, you know, I'm just so thrilled to be invited to be involved with it. I mean, it's, it's breathtaking. So if much of our microbiota sticks around for much of our life, when do we get populated with it? Oh, so there's some debate about when we get populated by our microbiomes, right? It's actually a really interesting question. And the obvious thing, you know, when we think about it, is that when you, you know, pass through the birth canal or you're taken out through C-section, you get populated as soon as you're exposed to those environments. But the reality of it might not be quite that simple in that there are studies that show very clearly that you're able to isolate bacterial DNA from meconium. And so meconium is that first black, tarry poo that they pass, you know. And in there, there's actually bacterial DNA. 
So we can detect that in that meconium now. And babies, when they're actually in the womb, they swallow amniotic fluid. So they start swallowing fluid, and they swallow quite a lot of fluid quite early on. So it's actually possible that they're populated when they're in the womb. But the question is whether it's an actual live colonisation or whether they're just exposed to bacterial DNA or bits of bacteria, you know. Going back to Billy Apple, if what you're saying about Billy Apple, he's got some genes which determine whether or not he's got some bacteria. So there's quite a strong genetic component to this, and is that overlaid with an environmental component in terms of what comes and goes in your microbiome? Yeah, so look, it's, it's easy to think that the microbiome is something that's imposed on us, you know, that we pick it up. That's always the, the terminology that's used is, oh, you know, you pick up your microbiome, you inherit your microbiome, you, you know, you get it from the surfaces, you get it from your pets, you get it from, you know, everywhere, right? And to an extent, I think that's true. You know, you do. You know, it's clear that we do. But this is a genetic component to it where you have genes and those genes are basically, they seem to be linked to the selection of, of some bacteria. And so how that works exactly, I'm not, not really sure. But, but there is clear evidence that that's happening. And so it's not simply that this is imposed on us, but it's that we have this acting as an interface between our genes and our environment, perhaps. Billy Apple is one of the co-authors of the scientific paper that was published with the results of the study. Of course, he also responded in his own way with an artwork that he presented to the Liggins Institute. On the left-hand side are two samples, pieces of used toilet paper with faecal samples from Billy. They are timed and dated, one from 1970 and one from 2016. On the right-hand side of the artwork are two colourful bar graphs showing the identity and proportions of microbes present in his gut at the different times. The artwork is called N equals 1. As it says, N equals 1, there's nobody else. And the question is, why is there somebody in the first place? It was done as an artwork, and I kept the results. People don't keep samples like that unless you're a nutter. But I'm an artist. I mean, there's lots of other works I've done where I keep samples of different things as well. You know, um, always to do with myself. Otherwise, why would you keep them? You know, it's just information. I'm doing works about my eyesight now to do with my 20, 2300 vision. And I've done a lot of works over the years, and I've gathered them all together. It's, it's quite an amazing result as well. So there's enough, there's enough information. You have to look out too far. There's enough information right at my fingertips. I think I could sit in an empty room and not look out a window and do it, carry on for the rest of my days. Billy Apple's an artist who's fascinated with science and who enjoys using himself as subject. And he's still curious about his microbiome. I think August of 16 we did that second test. Uh, but since then, in May last year, I had to go to hospital because my gallbladder became septic and eventually um, it was removed. And it was a big mess, so I said to Justin that we should redo the thing, and which he's agreed to do, and see whether or not, with the septic gallbladder removed, whether it's changed anything. Thanks, Billy. That was artist Billy Apple, and we also heard from Justin O'Sullivan at the Liggins Institute and the University of Auckland. And you can find a photo of the artwork N equals 1 and a link to the scientific paper at our webpage rnz.co.nz slash Our Changing World Thanks for your company Until next week it's goodnight from me Alison Balance Kia pai tōpō 
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.